and I meet one-on-one with each student, which is a lot of work, but I plan it so that it's around midterm time. So they can be doing midterm review. And it's my favorite time because I ask them three simple questions. What do you feel really good about in this class? What are you struggling with? And what do you want to do after you leave this place? So I don't ask them what college they want to go to because they don't all need to go to college. They need to follow what their strengths are suited to. Say hello to Kelsey Briley. Kelsey left private industry to teach chemistry in Nashville, Tennessee. These days, it seems most teachers have a side hustle, and Kelsey is no different. In this episode, she talks about how she turned her early experience of teaching chemistry while she scrambled from room to room alongside her students into a social media presence and a side business. With her Instagram handle of chemistry on a cart, she humanizes the student-teacher relationship with clear boundaries and markets her website where she runs a blog and sells complete lessons aimed at high schoolers. And you can find links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me this week and investing your time in Life Behind the Desk. Welcome to the Life Behind the Desk podcast where teachers can give voice to what it's really like to be the one handing out the grades. You'll hear about the highs and lows of the job, the daily challenges, and the big-picture struggles, and how that job's changed with distance education and COVID-19. It's a place where teachers with different experiences can share the parts of the job parents and students don't get to see, like staff meetings, how much work gets done outside of the classroom, and the tears and just maybe what summer vacation really looks like. And now, let's go behind the desk with Jonathan Miller and this episode's education superhero. Welcome back, everybody, to Life Behind the Desk. This week, we're going to be talking to Kelsey Briley, who is a teacher out in Nashville, Tennessee. And with that, Um, I'm going to ask Kelsey to give a quick introduction, where you're at, what you're teaching. And we should say that this is being recorded kind of the end of September. And maybe you can mention a little bit about uh, how far you are into the school year there. Yes, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, my name is Kelsey Riley, and I teach chemistry at a in a suburb of Nashville, going into my third year. And I actually teach at the high school that I went to, so it's super special to get to go and teach in the chemistry classroom that I fell in love with science in. Oh, that's amazing! That's that's really great. I. When I was working on a credential, I never finished it and I work in corporate education now, but when I was working on it, I was fortunate enough to get to go back to the high school I graduated from and do lots of observations and whatnot with teachers I had had. Now, going into and teaching at the school where you worked at, what was that experience like? Did you know? Did you have maybe a little bit of trouble in the beginning where, you know, now I'm now I'm peers with these people for whom I was a student of. What was that experience like? I think I was actually more comfortable than if I was going into a a strange environment because I didn't actually start my education career um, from an education background. So I went to school for chemistry first. And so I now knew all of the teachers that I was coming into and I had the science background, but I knew I had these phenomenal teachers that would have my back if I needed help (laughs) because as a student, they had had my back. Um, So I think it for them, it was probably harder than anything because they're like, oh gosh, this kid is returning (laughs) and she's my peer. (laughs) But on my end, it was wonderful because I knew how great they were. That's great. Yeah, because you actually spent some time out in industry before coming into teaching. So you had a lot of real world practical science experience before coming back and being an instructor. So what, what did you do in industry before you came back to be a teacher? So I got my bachelor's in chem. And when I was an undergrad, I had an incredible opportunity at Tennessee Tech University to do undergraduate research. I mean, I got to go to Oak Ridge National Lab and work for the government. I got to go and do um, 
a drug testing lab internship. And so it was amazing experience. And so I was like, I'm going to go do industry. I'm going to make these, you know, big help with the companies in Nashville. And so I did, I ended up working at a drug testing lab in Nashville that I interned at and just every single day I was learning new things. It was so fascinating, but the environment was sitting at a computer all day. And we know that teaching is not that. So um, maybe a little bit now, but, you know, not talking to many people and just really diving into data. I mean, I was looking at data and running instruments and some really cool science, but my heart was, was not there. So after, um, doing some high school outreach with that company, which super thankful that they allowed that, that outreach kind of showed me that I'm really excited about these events. Maybe, maybe that's where my heart is, not necessarily in the lab setting. So you're working in industry and doing all this great science. You get to go out and you get to meet these kids and doing this high school outreach and which meant you'd have to go back to school again to get licensed to teach. And we talk a lot on this show about how that's kind of an individualized thing for everybody. And it depends on, you know, what you're teaching, where you're teaching at, where you're at in your education. So what did that look like for you? You know, you've earned your degree, you're in industry, and then you go back. How did that play out? It was a lot to coordinate, but um, like you said, it's so individualized. So because I wanted to teach chemistry, there was only one university in my area that I was actually allowed to go to um, that had the credentials for the chemistry certification. And so I was able to start teaching before I had stepped in a teaching classroom. I had never had any hours of education you know, instruction until um, I was already a month into my first teaching job. So I start day one and I have three weeks before I'll be told, hey, classroom management is a thing. (laughs) And all of these things that you get as a teaching background. So I had to do night classes two to three times a week during my first year of teaching. So oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> that that's a whole lot because you know what we keep hearing here is just that first year. It's it's a challenge in the best of terms. It's a bit of a meat grinder for everybody because you come in. There's so many unknowns, but you dove in. It sounds like you dove into it as kind of in here in California they refer to it as an internship. So. You're full-time the teacher of record, but you're doing all of your credentialing work uh, kind of at night. Is that, am I hearing that right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going in, I'm going into work at 730 because I taught on a cart my first semester. So I had to be there extra early to get all of my stuff put on the cart for the day to travel from room to room. And then as soon as work's over, I'm going to class from like 4 to 8 p.m. And then after that, I'm lesson planning until sometimes 2 in the morning. Because I had, you know, I had a team, but it's there's something different about making your own notes. You know, it's hard to go off someone else's notes. So my days were about like 7 to 2 sometimes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and I know that for that first year, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks just aren't uncommon for anybody. But when you throw in the fact that you're in school on top of that, it's just an incredible load. Um, Now, you mentioned that you're teaching on a cart and that you go around to different uh, classrooms. So what age group are you teaching? And how how does that look? Are you teaching, you know, is it the same ones weekly? Kind of what's your average week look like? So when I was on a cart, I'm very thankful not to be on a cart anymore. Seniority kind of a couple years in, I got to get my own classroom. But because I was teaching high school. So in the high school setting, you know, kids are all over the the school with their schedules not really lining up. And that kind of right now is why we've been so different than the elementary setting during this pandemic. (laughs) But when I was on a cart, I was I taught three different classes. So my first semester, I would start in one room, teach mostly 11th graders, and then I would 
scurry to the next room in between the bells and teach some more and mostly all the same level. So I was very fortunate to have the same topic. I didn't have multiple preps. But yes, pretty much when kids are going from class to class, so was I. (laughs) So it's almost like being an adjunct professor just condensed to one campus. Yes. Yes. That's a good explanation (laughs) for it. Oh my gosh. So that, and that, and again, that's your first year and that's a unique way of teaching chemistry. So this was a full class. This wasn't just a drop-in thing. This was a full semester class for everybody. Yes. So our school, we're on block schedules. And so it's really nice for the kids because if they do poorly in a subject, they have lots of wiggle room in their schedule to make up up that grade or that topic. But they also have lots of flexibility to have these specialized classes. So the block schedules are great for, you know, our CTE teachers that, you know, you can take fashion like four times. <laughs> so I don't know that everyone has that opportunity. I have kids every single day for 90 minutes in one semester. You get really close when you're seeing them for that long <laughs> so frequently. It's a different kind of layout, definitely, than if you see them all year round. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of those block schedules, those 90 minutes, because I think you can actually be a little more effective in your instruction with with that 90 minutes. So I work in corporate education. We talk a lot about context switching and just how much productivity in, in the classroom setting, how much learning can be lost when you have to bounce from one subject to the next. So I feel like those 90-minute blocks, you can actually get your students to retain some more in, information. Yeah, I agree. I also like that I don't have to, I don't ever feel rushed. I mean, if anything, I'm having to make sure I've got enough content to present for 90 minutes. Yeah, that's, um, I experienced that quite a bit in a corporate classroom. (laughs) uh, One of the women that I worked with that was just this wonderful mentor named Marcia Slaybaugh. I learned so much from her traveling around the country and we were training these DOD people and she she would continually remind me, you have to practice your gift of gab. You have to learn how to talk more <laughs> about the same subject. <laughs> Definitely. I also like it because it's like, you know, three chunks of 30 minutes. And so I can kind of lecture the first 30 minutes, do a group activity that second 30, and then set them on their own to really apply it individually that last 30. So I've gotten pretty comfortable with the 90. Yeah, that's great. And then there's no loss, you know, the next day for, you know, in a different model, you might have to lecture one day, do the project the next, and you kind of lose something over that day. So you mentioned your first year you were teaching chemistry on a cart, which is actually the name of your Instagram feed. And which, by the way, is a lot of fun to follow. Um So you do have a great social media presence and you do have a lot of curriculum and projects and a few other things going outside of teaching. Do you want to take a minute and maybe tell us some about that? Absolutely. That has really, you know, a lot of teachers have a side hustle. (laughs) And so I started my Instagram to kind of show what it's like to be on a cart. And before it was ever something I was going to try and move into a business. And I really just wanted to show people what, you know, how you can be successful on a cart. And by the second semester, I feel like I had really figured it out. I'd figured it out how to, what to put on there for each class and what to not, what you don't need on there, things like that. And then it evolved because I realized I was doing things a little bit different than a lot of teachers. I think coming from the science background, I didn't have, um, I had some different ideas about games and different group activities that um, I wasn't seeing out there. And so that's when I started creating products. I started realizing that I could make something that students around the country could use. And that was so, such a powerful thing to me. And I'm like, I can have an impact beyond just my students. And so I started, um, you know, making stuff that I could share. Yeah. And also that opens it up to other instructors to use as well. And maybe, you know, instructors where schools don't have such a robust offering, they can maybe bring in a little bit of say chemistry 
where otherwise they wouldn't be able to since you have everything packaged really well. And it seems, even as an English major, it seems really <laughs> easy to follow. Thank you. Yeah, one of my like taglines is like engagement beyond the book, because I think if you just follow the book, um, you can, you can be, you know, you can teach a class that way, but taking it further and like really stretching those um, group activities and creative um, outlets too for students. Yeah, as a corporate trainer, I've done plenty of just teaching straight out of the material because you have to teach a lot of different stuff. Um all of the links to your Instagram and everything else, if folks are interested, we will include all of that in the show notes. So please go there and check out Kelsey's work outside of the classroom. So you mentioned real quick these days, I assume you're talking about this pandemic that we're all trying to make our way through the best we can. It seems like with the work you had been doing with this, it seems like you might have been a little bit better equipped to jump on distance learning than other teachers might have been. So if you could go back, you know, to February, March or so last year and kind of talk about what it was like creeping up to where schools started shutting down and sending people home and how your school handled that, and then how you were able to continue teaching, not having a classroom. Yes. Uh, We in in Tennessee, we start pretty early. So we actually start beginning of August and we end the end of May. So March 13th, you know, the day that everyone remembers that things changed was actually the, the last day before spring break for us. So it kind of fell in a weird time for us compared to everyone. But I was supposed to have a field trip that day. So I had taken a day off. Well, I had, we didn't know this was coming, obviously. So I kept the day off thinking, you know what, I'll just take, you know, it was already on the schedule, might as well just run into spring break with a personal day. And so I didn't go to work on March 13th, which is crazy, because that was the last day I would have seen my students. And We were just, I think for me at least, there were rumblings, but I did not realize we would not be returning after spring break. So we were mid-chapter, you know, I was in mid-interviews with my students that I do at the halfway mark, and we just didn't return after spring break. And initially, we weren't told anything. (laughs) We weren't told anything about what expectations were going to be because they had that buffer week. So I don't honestly know from the administrator perspective what that week looked like, and I probably don't want to know. I doubt they had a proper spring break because we ended up starting Google Classroom that very next Monday. I mean, we and like you said, I was very fortunate to have already been using Google Classroom. So the transition wasn't that drastic for me, but we have several teachers in my, my school that had a lot of trouble because if you didn't already have Google Classroom set up, you had to figure that out. If you didn't have Remind, where the Remind app where you can communicate with students and parents very easily, if you didn't have that set up, you were in a very different place than those of us that did have those outlets already. So I think with all of the unknown that was happening, because I had those tech things already in place, like you said, I was in a very more comfortable spot than a lot of people. Let's take a quick break. This month's sponsor is Coach Hall Writes. In 2019, Coach Hall began a YouTube channel as a medium to support her students outside the classroom. Today, that YouTube channel and resulting website has grown into one of the top resources for AP language and composition teachers to help their students pass their advanced placement exams. You can learn more at CoachHallWrites.com and explore all of the resources Coach Hall offers. Coach Hall was also an early guest on Life Behind the Desk. This means you can listen to her episode on this very same podcast. Links for that episode and the Coach Hall Writes website are available in the show notes of Season 2, Episode 3 of this podcast. And now, back to the show. And then the rest of your school year was distance learning, right? Correct. 
we um we never returned to the building for that school like for the 20 19 20 year but what they decided to do for us and i'm sure this was handled by everyone very differently we had enrichment points so we actually froze student grades as of march 13th and so anything the students did beyond that was just going to benefit their grade but on our end, we, um, you know, we couldn't just decide if we wanted to post. So um, we were, you know, using Google Cl- Classroom and I was putting out an activity a day that might maybe take them 15 to 30 minutes. And if they did three of the five activities, they earned the point for that week. So I tried to make it pretty flexible um, where they could still pop in, do a 15 minute lesson and some practice problems. And I had four students that did every single assignment that I posted. And I had several that didn't do a single one, you know, but um, it really challenged me to create some digital resources that I wouldn't have had otherwise. That's great. That's really impressive. Cause I know it just, you know, nobody, nobody was prepared for this. How could you be prepared for it? And I know for us here in Sacramento, it seemed like it kind of crept up and crept up. And like you said, there were some rumblings. And next thing you know, nobody's going back to school. And that's just where you're at. And I know I've got my son's in second grade this year. So seeing how his teacher handled it and talking to other parents about how their teachers handled it, you know, like you said, it was across the board. Some teachers handed out, you know, you'd go and you'd pick up materials and some teachers would hand out stacks of worksheets. Other teachers were preparing, they had a whole bank of YouTube videos for their kids every day, you know, so it's across the board. And I think the important thing to point out for everybody and especially remind parents is that everybody's doing the absolute best they can through all of it. So that being said, so you got through last year, everybody got grades and, you know, you do the best you can. What was the return to school like this year? Are you guys in the classroom full time? Do you still have students at home? What does this year look like so far? So we started on August 3rd and I feel like I will forever remember March 13th and August 3rd because they're just very unique days in education history. So for us on August 3rd, we started what we called a hybrid model. And everyone's hybrid looks a little bit different based on Instagram. But ours was we had half our students Monday and Thursday, half of them Tuesday and Friday. And then Wednesday, everyone was virtual. So this model was made because they didn't want students being away from their teacher for like a bunch of days in a row. So you know, our teachers were asking like, why not Monday, Tuesday, the same group, but our principals really didn't want us not seeing our students from Tuesday to Monday. So I really like that they took that into account for that social emotional aspect for our kids. So starting on the hybrid, I had to kind of change a lot of things because I used to do fill in the blank notes. I mean, that's what I spent hours my first year preparing and, you know, making perfect. Well, fill in the blank notes don't work if I have to make sure I hand them four days worth of fill in the blanks before they leave. And I was just, I needed to take one less thing off my plate. So I decided to change from fill in the blanks to PowerPoints, which I was reluctant to do because I really like those fill in the blanks. They don't have to pay attention to everything. But I tried to strategically teach them how to take notes from PowerPoints. So I think that was a valuable you know, way to spend my time in the beginning. Because if we're going to use PowerPoints, you need to know how to effectively you know, make notes from them. So we did recordings that way I could buzzword synchronous (laughs) synchronous. I really wanted to aim for as synchronous as possible just for my, you know, my mentality as well and my mental health. (laughs) So I had it, the kids at home were watching a recording and then I was, you know, teaching in person for the ones that were there that day. So we had classes of about, I don't know, eight to 12 each day in person. And then I tried to keep as many people on, you know, on pace with us when they were at home. So when the school year started gearing up, you know, I'm on Facebook and just having kind of my career goal to start with was teaching, which just kind of didn't work out. 
but kind of coming up in their world, I still know a whole lot of teachers and I keep seeing all these memes on Facebook about, you know, say synchronous or asynchronous <laughs> one more time. And it was a little bit weird for me because I had to stop and I had to think because working in corporate education and developing e-learning, those are everyday terms. We, those are just, that's just stock and trade in the vernacular. So it was a little bit, it, you know, it was a little bit like, huh, why are people so annoyed at this? And, you know, I had to stop and think, this is a brand new thing for absolutely every teacher out there. Yes. And yeah, and I remember when when everybody first got sent home and then kind of came back after spring break, I got kind of popular with some of my teacher friends trying to figure <laughs> out how do I teach someone via the internet because it's it's a different it's a little bit of a different skill set you have to think about things in a different way we've talked about social media and your presence on social media and one thing that came up with one of the interviews i had earlier today was how social media kind of can mix both good and bad with teaching because when i first started coming up it just it wasn't a thing it wasn't an issue so when you're doing kind of your teacher training, do they talk about this at all? Like the impact that social media can have? Is there any guidance on, you know, how to either not get in trouble with it or how to use it effectively? I definitely think they talk about not getting in trouble. So when I started my account, I made sure to talk to my uh, vice principal and, you know, make sure I was following all the rules, looking through the handbook. So I know they definitely, you know, talk about what you need to be aware of no personal messaging with students for sure but i do i they're allowed to follow the account you just aren't supposed to follow them back so there's some little um important things that they had us knowing so no personal messaging them so they did i definitely talked to my vice principal um when i wanted to start the account so before it was even a business i just wanted to share my ideas what are the rules because i wasn't really told the good things that a social media account can come from, but I was definitely told not to direct message students. <laughs> so um, it's just too personal to have a, you know, a, a social account that's following them. Remind is a great tool for that. So, you know, no personal messaging with students and they were okay with them following my account, but they definitely didn't want me to follow their account, like my administrators. So, um, that has been something I think they were like, okay, on the defense, don't do these things. What I don't think that teachers get told about is what you can do with social media. So I have polls um, about my students, you know, my students answer polls on my Instagram, you know, and like all these fun things that they can see like, oh, like she's talking about what we're going to do tomorrow or <laughs> she's showing this, my work. Sometimes I'll take a picture of like, if they do really beautiful notes, post that picture of their beautiful notes, like with their permission. And they, you know, get to see like, wow, she thought a lot of that to share that with the community. And so there are definitely some, you know, you want to be careful, but there are some positives that can come out of it for sure. That's excellent. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, this is the world that our students are living in now. It's everybody's on social media and there are really powerful ways to use it to help you to be a more effective teacher? I think that allowing my students to, to follow that social media, but not, the, not my personal, because I do keep that separate as well. I have a separate one for chemistry. And because they see day-to-day -day life of a teacher, I think they open up more because they're seeing that I'm a human <laughs> And I'm not just this, you know, authoritative figure. I'm I'm a person. And so my some of my favorite students are the ones that really see me as more than just a teacher. You know, they respect me in the classroom, but then they also realize they can talk to me about, you know, stuff they have going on. I want to share in their victories. I want to help them through their struggles. And so some of my favorite um, students that have graduated now, we can now talk on those social media platforms. Yeah, I talking to one of my friends that still teaches her hard and fast rule is that she doesn't she doesn't mix like that personal social media with mm -hmm. students until September after they've graduated. Nice. <laughs> that, 
hard and fast. So she said, you know, come September every year, she gets like this flood of, you know, a dozen or so. Okay, so as a high school teacher, at this point, most of the time kids are kind of parents have have are a lot more hands off than they would be as say, you know, elementary or junior high teachers. But what has your parent interaction looked like? Like, do you, have you seen maybe some really good examples of parent involvement that you can share? Um, I think it's very different. My sister is actually a kindergarten teacher. And so, and my best friend from high school is a kindergarten teacher. So I have these two really prominent people in my life that deal with parents a lot more than I do. But we actually have parent-teacher conferences, and it'd be, if we had three three student parents show up, it would be a lot. Um, we have very, very little interaction with them physically. And um, I'd say that this pandemic has probably brought on more parent interaction than I would have known, in a good way, because when we went remote in the spring, parents didn't know what the expectations for their kids were. You know, are they supposed to be sleeping till one or are they supposed to be up, you know, working on things? Are You know, they're saying they're doing the work, but are they really? So parents for the first time, at least for me, were having, you know, didn't know what was expected. And so I had to start communicating more with parents where beforehand, I probably only heard from parents if something negative was going on. Why is it a 67? Why? What? What's the deal? What? And so I've had some you know, some parents reach out for that. When I do come to parent-teacher conferences, I've had one parent that I just loved because, you know, they had like a C and I told them how things were going. You know, they're sleeping or they're kind of off task. And she said, hmm, okay. <laughs> you know, so I think that was a fun one because she said, you know, she didn't realize because they don't see them and how they behave in the classrooms. And so I think a supportive parent who trust your judgment about, you know, doesn't just be, well, my baby would never not pay attention. (laughs) So I've had some really great experiences with parents who really want their kids to succeed and have been not second guessed me. And I think that would be the, the most negative for me if it were to happen would be if a parent didn't didn't believe me if I said this was happening. And so I'm fortunate to not have had those encounters. That's great. It, it's always really good to hear to hear stories about supportive, involved parents because it's you know because you hear the opposite as well, and it's really heartbreaking when you do. If you had to give parents any advice on what they can do to help their students succeed, what would that be? I think so. My brother is actually a junior at where I teach. And so it's a really cool dynamic. I teach where I went and I teach where my brother goes. And my mom will sometimes say like, you know, she'll ask me like, hey, is he supposed to be doing this? Like, why is he this? And I told her, I was like, don't harp on him for doing his homework. Like, Don't come in with that attitude. Like, you better be doing this. I was told her, you know, the biggest advice I would say is, Ask them how the class is going and then, you know, oh, well, do you have homework in there often? (laughs) I think if they come at it more like, hey, tell me about your life, then like you better be doing um, doing that. And so I think if I was if a parent asked me what they could be doing for their student, I would say ask them about the class and what the workload looks like. Don't harp on them with negative immediately. Yeah, and I think that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with, you know, being active on social media where your students can access you is that, you know, it humanizes everybody involved, especially at this age when they're not little kids anymore. You know, we don't need to hold their hand and put the pencil in their hand. And I think if you allow a kid to have a little more ownership over what they're doing, you know, they'll take it. Like people rise to expectations. Absolutely. So the parent parent involvement right now for me is I send out a weekly email. So it's got the weekly agenda for what we're doing each day. And um, they really seem to like that in the spring. And so I continued it this semester as well. That's great. And then what's that dynamic like with your brother at the school? That can't be a common... uh... 
that can't be a common occurrence. Yes. Yeah, so we were 10 years apart in age. So we were kind of like only children. Like both of us had kind of have the personality of an only child in terms of our household. I have two sisters that are also that grew up in a different household. And that big age gap is kind of fun. So my, my you know, growing up, my sibling, my my friends loved him because he was adorable. And then now it's cool because he actually comes to see me between every single class. Like he's the sweetest. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's adorable. <laughs> and um, when he has like, you know, I eat lunch with the science and foreign language department. And when he's ever had one of those teachers, you know, they'll be like, you know, he was sleeping today and I had to tap his desk a few times or they'll be like, he is just the sweetest. He, he helped this person do this. So they really like, you know, dote on him in the way that they're like, you know, they can tease him a little bit more because they know who he is and they can be a little bit tougher on him because they know who he is. And um, I'm actually going to have him next semester. <laughs> <laughs> we, we may have to follow up and uh, see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, I love having him at the school. So that's amazing that I, I would love to uh, I'd love to find out just how many people end up having a sibling in their classroom. That's incredible. So, you know, the pandemic's brought some some obvious challenges with teaching and delivering quality education to your kids. But how, what are some of the biggest challenges for you teaching in general in like a supposed normal year? I think, so I thought about this one as I was reading through like some question prompts. And I really think that having... 20, you know, 50 plus kids. You've got 50 plus kids every day expecting you to have something for them to do. (laughs) And it sounds simple, but I think that's probably the hardest thing for me is keeping up, just making sure I'm using, especially now, I need to use that in person time so effectively and that planning is what makes it, that's the hardest part for me. Especially because, you know, a lot of teachers, once they've kind of been planning a few years and built that curriculum, you can kind of refer back to things and even reuse some things. But, you know, you were teaching for what, a year and a half, and then you had to relearn how to teach all over again anyway. Yeah. And, you know, students absolutely know when you're not prepared. It's absolutely clear. I remember a Spanish teacher. I don't remember what the assignment was, but we didn't, we hadn't gotten our workbooks or something like that. And she, she gave us this homework assignment and I was sitting in the hall at lunch trying to knock it out. Cause this, it's just, it was ridiculous. And I saw her walking by. I was like, can you be honest? Is this really just busy work? Cause you had to give us a homework assignment today and we don't have books. And she goes, you don't tell anybody and you don't have to turn it in. Fair enough. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yes. Cause you don't, you want to avoid the busy work. You don't want them doing. And I think that's one thing I've learned um, in the, you know, this the start of my third year, the first semester I graded everything that they did and it was too much. I mean, I could not manage. So now I've made it to where I only grade three things per chapter. They've got a homework, a lab and a quiz. They know that. And they know that if I give them something that's not graded, it is not busy work. They know that doing this assignment is going to help them do that homework assignment faster. So I think that, you know, building that mentality for them early on that I'm not going to assign busy work. But then that puts the pressure on me. (laughs) Right. But it also builds the trust in that they know you're not going to present them with something that's just not worth their time. Because even a teenager, they don't want to be wasting their time. Yes. A lot of them work that I have. So, I mean, they're driving, they're working. And, you know, with our financial situation right now, some of them have to work for their parents to be able to pull things off the same. And so I value their outside of time, you know. I've got, I've started to value my own a little bit more, but I definitely try to value their personal time as well. That's great. And, and hopefully that's going to be a little more common as things progress. And, you know, I have a lot of faith that we will get through this another year or so we'll start seeing 
a more normal life, quote unquote, you know, I, I really hope everybody learns a lot of things in this and, you know, learns to value their time a little bit more. So for you, what is the greatest part of teaching? Like why, you know, it's been three years. Why do you keep coming back? It's the relationship building. And I know that you're going to find so many teachers that will say that. And, um, you know, a lot of people remember their kindergarten teacher and they remember their elementary teachers very well. But in the high school level, it's this different bond because they're almost adults. And so I think the relationships we get to build, they're going to, we're preparing them to go out into the world. And so I take it so seriously. Um, I decided my first semester, I don't even know why I decided this, but at the nine week mark, because I'm halfway through, we've gotten to know each other. They know we're comfortable. And I meet one-on-one with each student, which is a lot of work, but I plan it so that it's around midterm time. So they can be doing midterm review. And it's my favorite time because I ask them three simple questions. What do you feel really good about in this class? What are you struggling with? And what do you want to do after you leave this place? So I don't ask them what college they want to go to because they don't all need to go to college. They need to follow what their strengths are suited to. And so it's the most powerful relationship builder. And I didn't get to do it in the spring. It was it was heartbreaking. But that right there, that's why I keep coming back. I keep coming back because when I get to sit one-on-one with a kid and they tell me they want to go to auto mechanic school, and then we can talk about, well, let's talk about how my class relates to auto mechanics <laughs> or microbiology. Well, I know it's not exactly chemistry, but let's figure out a way to get you interested and keep you interested with this class while you prepare to move on to the next stage in life. I'm glad you bring up, you know, the fact that you talk about even if it's not college, because so many kids just aren't college bound for a litany of reasons. And doing these interviews, it's been so great to talk to pretty much every teacher that has brought up the same point. And I feel like it's a real disservice that vocational programs, you know, it seems like we lose more every year across the country. So I guess a good question now would be what, what does vocational education look like at your school? At our school, we have a really strong CTE presence. So um, our DECA, gosh, our DECA program is phenomenal. Those kids leave with real life business, you know, understanding. Um, They've succeeded really well. We've got people through our DECA program who've started businesses you know, they didn't, they did maybe two-year community college and then started a business rather than doing the four-year traditional. So our DECA program is really strong. And our FFA program, we're a newer school. We actually only opened about 18 years ago. So in our community, that's a very new school. And so we're building our FFA up a lot and they get to do competitions. You know, we, we got a greenhouse at this point, which I don't know if every school has that, but it was a big deal for us to get a greenhouse. We also have small animal care um, where kids actually, there's a doggy daycare they get to work in. You know, we can, as teachers, we can even bring our dogs and they can groom them. And <laughs> so I think we do have a really, we're building up that CTE. You can take fashion multiple years. And we even have a teacher focus too. So we have a early childhood development path that students can take if they're interested in learning more about that. That's awesome. That's really good to hear because I know I've seen a lot of schools around here that the ones that do have some kind of vocational offering, it's great that it's there, but it's, it's certainly... I don't know that it's ubiquitous. It's something I'd like to look into, especially because, you know, I have a kid coming up through this whole system and where he's ADHD. I, you know, it's hard to tell at seven years old if a kid's on a college track, but I, I know from my personal experience, college when you're ADD is, it's an extra challenge. (laughs) You came in, you got to teach a year and a half, and then you got to change everything about teaching. And that first year you were going to school on top of teaching. What 
does your work life balance look like? Like, do you feel like you've gotten a little bit better handle on it now? Has it improved? Or are you still trying to kind of figure out a healthy work life balance? When I first started, I was on a teacher, you know, chat room thing. And they were like, what's your word for the year? And I was like, balance. I really want to find balance. And she straight up said, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, it was sounded so negative to a new teacher, but it, it takes work to be balanced, I think. And that's what I'm learning. I'm very thankful to have a husband who will make me stop working. He will look at me and say, okay, Kelsey, like you need to go watch some mindless television. <laughs> like, I think for me, work-life balance, it's not going to just happen. And I didn't know that to begin with. I thought, this is fine. I can do this. But um, it takes constant like mindfulness, being mindful that tonight I don't need to grade papers because I have planning tomorrow to do that. That's another thing that my husband helped me realize was that it's okay to be stressed at work. And so that was something, you know, I thought if I just work all the time, it's never that bad. <laughs> but he's like, why don't you? make work really high intensity. And then when you get home, you are able to turn it off a little bit more. So work-life balance for me, I've been trying to really plan out my planning period so that I'm not grading papers at home, so that I'm not lesson planning at home as much as possible and using that time more effectively. And again, block schedule, I've got 90 minutes. You can do a lot with 90 minutes. If you don't go chat with people. <laughs> so I think I'm going to find, I don't know that it's, it's almost like that happiness thing. Like happiness is where you are. It's not like in the future, you know, work-life balances. It's not this place I'm striving for. It's something you have to every single day, you know, be. Yeah. in in interviewing teachers, I think I'm going to have to get stickers or something made up that say, you know, the best teacher is not the one that works the most hours. Because that's been a common theme in a couple uh, in a couple of these interviews. Considering we have a very unique school year ahead of us, have your priorities changed at all? Are you know? Do you have different priorities going into this new model for this year? Um, our our county actually developed something pretty neat. So um, because of state testing, you know, we still have all of our state standards and. Our county created a document that highlighted the most important standards. And I thought that was a really valuable thing because we have some students that are fully remote, even though we're in week seven and we've gone back full time in person. So we're not even on a hybrid model anymore. But the people that are virtual, if they return, we have to be in the same place that they were. So our county created a really powerful document that shows like where you need to be and when, but also, okay, this standard is not as important. If you on a hybrid schedule, we're not going to cover that one. So I think that that has, that has helped. I know now to take any fluff that I did have out, we don't need the fluff. And so we've fully returned in person, but that mentality will definitely stick with me. I think I need to make that a regular part of these interviews is, you know, what have you learned that you're going to, uh, one last question. You had that intern kind of model in your training where you were working and going to school at the same time. Is there anything that you wish you would have known before you started that, or maybe some things that you learned in the classroom, but were not taught in your training that you really kind of wish they were? I think the program I was in didn't teach classroom management in the first semester. And I, no, I needed that. I needed that before I started in the classroom. So I started, I had a year of teaching under my belt before I took a classroom management class. And so I just figured it out on my own. And I think um, being a young teacher, I was, I mean, I wasn't straight out of college. I did have some years behind me, but being still pretty young, that, that would have been the most valuable piece. So I wish I'd had some more um, classroom management experience or at least, you know, from the book thoughts on classroom management before I stepped in the room because I have definitely 
become a more um, let the students help me figure out how the class is going to go, then here's 10 rules and you better remember them. And so um, I think classroom management, especially on that transitional license, is the thing you need the most because we prepare when you come from a chemistry background, you want to make sure your content is great. You don't think I need to have procedures in place. I need to have where are they going to turn papers in? Like, <laughs> so I think for a new teacher on a transitional, making sure that that's more important in the first week than chemistry or English or whatever your content is. Right. Cause you would expect that someone has their content or at least their subject matter down going into it. Um, so Anything you'd like to add? Any parting words for people? Any last uh, tips to be a successful teacher or successful student or parent? Oh, man. Um, I think mindset is everything. And if if this year has taught us anything, it's that. So if I were to say any last parting words for any of those people, students, parents, or teachers, it's that now we realize things can change in an instant. So you've got to be positive with whatever's thrown at you. So positivity is what I try to portray in all of my platforms and in my classroom. And I think that, you know, moving forward, if we can all keep a positive mindset, then we'll be successful. Between the experience of not having her own classroom, shifting gears to teach remotely mid-year and being prepared for a unique teaching situation this year, Kelsey has learned to pare her teaching down to the essentials, eliminating the fluff and respecting the time her students spend with her in the classroom and on their own. Kelsey does a great job of seeing students as people with goals and ambitions and not just another kid in the classroom. Yes, she is selling materials, but more than making money, her goal is to enhance the lives of her fellow teachers and help them impact their students in a more meaningful way and achieve better educational outcomes to serve her community. Please take a moment to look at the show notes where you'll find links to Kelsey's website and Instagram, as well as some information on the groups and terminology mentioned in this episode. If you have a moment, leave a review. It's an easy way to help grow the podcast. As always, thank you for taking time to listen in. I hope you find value in life behind the desk, and I hope it inspires you to look at teachers, teaching, and students just a little bit different. See you next week.